thank you for joining us on another episode of Popcorn for Breakfast. With me as always, your co-host, Kirk. Hello, hello. Surrounded by a circle of knives. That's Very right. Nice. Very nice green screen work tonight, Kirk. I, I respect the hustle. Thank you. Thank you. I'm your other co-host, Cam. And we are here to review a film. To review a film in a manner that we, we haven't done as much, which is spoiler-free. And that film is called Glass Onion, colon, A Knives Out Mystery. Hence the knives around Kirk's head. And that's just, that's from the first movie. That's right. Or is it from the second one? You won't know because we're not going to spoil it for you. It might be in there. It might not. You'll it's never know. The, it's in the first movie. It's in the first movie. <laughs> it's in the first movie. Spoiler alert. <laughs> no, that is not. It's not a spoiler. It's not a but spoiler. But we're not. But we're not indicating if it's also in the second one, Cam. But people know, right, that this isn't, it's a sequel, but it's not a continuation of the same story. But it's a possibility that we cannot expose oh to them. We, I mean, we have to say some stuff. I'm not going to spoil anything that happens or whatever, but I feel like I can at least say there's not a wall with a circle of knives in the movie. Oh my gosh, you just ruined this movie. For I'm sorry. I'm sorry. People. I'm trying. I'm not. I'm not trying to do it. That's. Listen. I feel like that would be weird if it was in there. So I feel like I need to tell people that it's not. I. I was hoping that at some point, Benoit Blanc, Benoit would Blanc. open a door, and all of a sudden, the knife, thing, the knife chair thrown, would be there. And then you realize you're back in the first movie. Right. It's a. There was a time travel portal right similar to in uh, the matrix 2 where he just walks into like this that this abyss of white televisions right and that is how glass onion goes but it's not we've lost all of our audience so now who's point, spoiling yeah. it kirk i think now you just did because you were saying you were hoping that this happened which means which implies that it didn't so there you go now we're even I was trying to get you out of the the firing line. You're falling on the sword for me. D- yes, you're I welcome. It. I appreciate you're it. welcome. Um, so yes, we are discussing Glass Onion, which is the second film in the Knives Out franchise. Now, here's what's tricky: this movie doesn't actually release widely until December 23rd when it releases on Netflix uh, because the Glass Onion Knives Out franchise is owned by Netflix now as of like, I don't know, last year or or two years ago or something like that. They purchased it. They did a limited release in theaters. It was only in theaters for one week, um, November 23rd through, I guess it's still in theaters, like through the 29th or something like that. And we went to go see it so that we could provide a spoiler-free review to you so that you would know our thoughts heading into its release on December 23rd on Netflix. Makes sense? Yes. I hope All so. Sense. If not, just leave. Just get out. If that didn't make sense, <laughs> you, you can't stay. All right. Kirk, let's jump into this movie. Let's, let's put on, let's, you know, the spoiler-free curtain is coming down now. We have to keep, we have to keep things really close to the vest here. We can't slip up. We have to be Are sharp. You- we're already 0 for 2 so far this in the, in the oh, four short minutes. It. 
that we've been recording. So Does I don't know. not count. I mean, spoiler caution, I should say, from here on out, but we're going to try to not tell you anything. I will not release this episode with spoilers, period. Will not happen. Any spoiler that we say, Cameron will painstakingly go through and, and censor out. No, but seriously, it would be so much work. So please, I'm begging you. And I'm begging me also. <laughs> <laughs> let's not blow this. Let's let's do let's do right by this. I um, am guilty of rarely listening back <laughs> to our episodes, and I just want to like click on this in a couple of months and you just completely throw in unnecessary censorship <laughs> throughout random pieces of factoids and uh anecdotes that I say throughout tonight's recording. Just like so places hope- like inserting uh like which which late night person was it who did like unnecessary censorship? Like they would do I, it in Sesame Street and stuff like that. I think it's Jimmy Kimmel. I yeah. do think it's Jimmy Kimmel. Like do that where it makes it sound like he said something really bad when you actually didn't. That would be fun, but I'm lazy. See, that's the problem is the lazy. <laughs> there's a laziness factor that comes into play and it, oh. it would be so much work to do it. So don't count on it. Okay. I won't count on it, but All I right. can count on tonight. The two of us talking about spoiler-free glass yes. onion and knives out mystery. That's right. That's happening. And you are going to get us started, Kirk, with uh, the synopsis of the film. So, Kirk, whenever you're ready. I am. And to transport us into that world, I figured it was only um, authentic of me to practice a southern accent, a Savannah accent. And oh, I my. will also mention that I am not the dialect guru that my wife is, and I don't know what this is going to sound like. Um, sometimes I start an accent and it ends up going Irish, Indian, uh, English, um, manic. I mean, it could go anywhere. So just strap in, guys. You ready? <clears throat> to get in the right mood, I have to first say I declare, I declare uh, before. So that is not part of the synopsis. I just want to make that very clear. Are you Got ready, it. Cam? Yes. I do declare, I declare, I declare. Here's the synopsis. An out-of-touch billionaire sends a cryptic puzzle to his closest friends for a weekend island getaway. The plot thickens when Benoit Blanc world-renowned detective, is accidentally invited to this party. The lines blur between business and pleasure on this tropical murder mystery. Can you peel back the layers and keep your eye dry? You can try. In glass (laughs) onion... (laughs) In glass onion, a knives out mystery... Wow. Maybe we should just go eat some hay. We can lay by the bay and make things out of clay. We just may. What do you say, Kirk? <laughs> oh, That I was pretty good, though. The accent, it was better than I was expecting. I blacked out at the beginning. I don't know if I said my first sentence. Did you hear? <laughs> Sends a cryptic puzzle to his closest yes, friends. Yes, that was the best okay. part. It was beautiful. It was really okay, good. It was well done. You were actually okay, channeling him. I think that's why you blacked out. Okay, cool. Great. All right, so that sets the stage. It's uh if you've ever if you've ever um read or or seen or heard many of the adaptations of And Then There Were None by Agatha Christie, it, it's one of her most it's it might be her most famous one. This is a very similar premise of like a bunch of people get invited to a place 
and then there's a murder. That's essentially what this is. Only in this case, they all they all know each other. So there's that layer, with the exception of Benoit Blanc, who, of course, is the detective. So, Kirk, let's start as we always do with the acting performances. I want to know who your and the Oscar goes to is. And the Oscar for Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery, goes to Edward Norton. I do declare he's the best one out there in this movie. You see all these big, big actors and their big starships and their and their monies and their spaceships and their yachts. Ed Norton, you are just a king of acting. I did not realize for a very long time just how good he was. Uh, there's probably a revelation for many people because you look at Edward Norton as an actor and you're like, it's just like a really skinny guy. Like I feel like I was a really skinny guy until I was 18. And then, you know, uh, my metabolism dropped. So I just think that when you look at him, he's just like this, this just like kind of rat like figure. And, and to that point, he plays a lot of rat like people. And it's like a 50, 50 shot. What you're going to get with, with Ed Norton. And what I feel so strongly to is despite anything working against or for him, his character is not created upon his look. And that is what is so spectacular about him. No matter what role he takes, you immediately forget who Ed Norton is once he starts to open his mouth. And that type of transformative, uh, just uh, magician in front of your eyes performance is so endearing. And I just got to say, it was difficult between Daniel Craig and Edward Norton here at the top for the Oscar goes to. But Ed Norton, you are just a marvelous, marvelous actor at your craft. And I could watch a supercut of all of your films uh, just to like juxtapose them next to each other over and over and over and over again. I am forever in your debt for stealing your bag of tricks, watching little things you do and trying to uh, then adapt them and, and run them through my filter and try to spit them out whenever I'm acting on stage. I just absolutely love what Ed Norton does. He gets it tonight. I, I love that pick and I, I'm very thankful for it because I thought really hard about going with Edward Norton. I think you know this, Kirk. I'm a massive Ed Norton fan. I yeah. am a huge, I, I've been, a, I mean, even before I was really, really into movies, I would have named Ed Norton as one of my favorite actors. I, I have loved him and just about everything that he's done. I think he's fantastic. And I think everything you said was spot on about, you know, the way that he handled the, this character work. He, he had so many great monologues in this movie. And the fact that his appearance is not different. Like when you see him on the screen, you're like, that's Ed Norton. And then, it, you know, within the first five minutes, he's taken you somewhere else. You know, he, yeah. he is, he's, he's created a whole new character and you totally forget even as, you know, somebody who has closely followed his film career, I'm watching this and going, wow, he's created something totally unique here that feels very authentic and, and very, you know, he's so detail oriented in his approach. It's absolutely insane. Uh, his speech patterns, the way that he, uh, I mean, even, even the way that he like stutters and stumbles over words is so specific to each character and sounds so, it has such flow. It's, it's unbelievable, but 
I actually, you know, you said it was close between him and Daniel Craig. I thought it was a dead heat. I ended up playing against my personal biases and going with Daniel Craig's Benoit Blanc. Um, I think the main thing that I will say, um, you know, this is a character that we've seen before, so you're you're not necessarily getting anything groundbreakingly new from Benoit Blanc, which is a good thing. You know, this this is the same character that you will remember from Knives Out. It's exceptionally consistent, but the big thing here that is so key in this movie is that this movie features a pretty significant tone shift when compared with the last film. The last film does have comedy interlaced into it, but is overall a way more dramatic play on the murder mystery genre when compared to this. And so when, you know, when Ryan Johnson's writing this movie and he's writing in the humor, he wrote in so much more humor into this film and he casted it in such a way that this, this cast would be able to hander, sorry, handle the more comedic and humorous elements of this film. And uh, it is totally necessary for Benoit Blanc to be the vehicle for us to make it through that transition. He, his character and his performance is almost telling us it's okay to laugh here. I'm going to show you we're 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 handling things in a different tone now than what you were used to in the first film which while silly in its own right comes across as much more um somber and stoic than this film because this film is I mean I don't know you could use any number of adjectives it's zany it's uh it's quirky it's it's funny it's it's a it's a movie that leaned much harder into the hor- the the humor of the film and uh, I, I liked that move, and I felt like it only worked because Benoit Blanc was there along with the ride, and Daniel Craig was in on the joke and was was playing to that really well. So I give him a lot of credit for that. Um, he could have just played super straight man on this, and it would have really messed with the vibe, but he didn't, and he helped make the tone of the movie really work. So it's really good writing on Ryan Johnson's part, again, um, but it's also really, really good character work by... Daniel Craig is Benoit Blanc again. Beautiful. Our two leading men. All right. Let's talk about scene stealer. Kirk, huge cast. So many options. Where are you going to go for your scene stealer? I'm throwing this to Miss Kate Hudson, the rom-com queen. And so much more than that. I mean, from beat one she had me cackling i don't think that there was anyone in our theater cam laughing harder than me at kate hudson's absolute ditziness like pure stupidity it was so perfect it was so pure like there wasn't a show on it kate hudson really locked into what is the dumbest person and what are the dumbest things that they could believe and how how what path would they get there that's the key right there it's not that they're just stupid it's the fact that they are thinking of of, of whatever is put in front of them that that they are thinking in a completely different path than anyone else would logically and that's what she took with this character i think they call her birdie um uh, birdie j is her character name kate hudson and just I love playing playing the idiot. I love playing the buffoon on stage because there is so much freedom to it. And there is also a responsibility that you have to 
structure those moments where uh, where they hit at different levels. So like uh, you hit at a one where it's just like something blase, not a big deal. And then you you have to crank things up and you have to build a dynamic. So sometimes you're at a nine in the next moment or or you drop it down to a four to alleviate the the how silly you just went. And that kind of dance is something that's kind of instinctual. Uh, you can learn it. There are mechanics to it, but ultimately there are people in this world like Kate Hudson that, that can see it and that can emulate it so well. Uh, and I just, I absolutely loved this character for her. It didn't seem like a regurgitated, uh, character that she's done before. And I don't think we'll ever see this person again, but I really, really, really loved how easily she slipped into this, how completely unforced she was and how absolutely hilarious she was from the moment we met her to the moment we left her when the screen went to the credits. Yeah. I love that pick too. I mean, I think that that was definitely a consideration for me. I mean, I saw this, we saw this together and we had multiple other family members with us. And I think like five, six minutes into the movie, my wife leans over and says, Kate Hudson is doing an awesome job. And I was like, yes, "Yes, she is. She's totally killing it. Um, This was one of the roles that was kind of publicized that uh, other people had auditioned for it, like Kaylee Cuoco and lost out to Kate Hudson. And when you see her on the screen and you see her as Birdie J making this come together, you're like, yep, makes sense. (laughs) Totally, totally clicks, totally works. And she's just out there killing it. So, I love that pick. I am going in a different direction with my scene stealer, and I'm going with Janelle Monet. Um, Janelle Monet, who I thought, I think it's really unfair when people are really talented at multiple different things, um, like being really powerful vocalists and then also really good actors, um, two of which are in this film, Leslie Odom Jr. and Janelle Monet. Um, unfair. Unfair. Uh, save some talent for the rest of us, why don't you, you jerks? Yeah. It's just not okay. And I think you should, I mean, I love it, but I also hate it. So, um, But I'm going with Janelle Monet, who in this film has a really tough task because her character is shrouded in intrigue for the whole, really the first half of the movie. And so there's a lot of like, there's a lot of games being played with her character. I have to be careful here. There's a lot of different things that are going on around her character. And she has to, uh, with the help of director Ryan Johnson and her fellow castmates, uh, really balance the exact, you know, you talked about dynamics and, and levels to things. She has to really balance what she's revealing at what times in what way there's lots of nonverbals, tons of nonverbals, which is something that she excels at um and i thought she just did a fantastic job i mean it's i I, it's really as simple as that i I thought that she gave a performance that was a true scene stealer in the sense of when she was on the screen you couldn't keep your eyes off of her because she was doing so much from a non-verbal perspective with her eyes telling a story with her eyes um, which is something she's really good at she just has it going man i mean she she was in moonlight she was great in that film she was in uh, Homecoming on uh, Amazon Prime Video. Really liked her in that. And I just think that she's uh, done a really good job here. So Janelle Monet, excellent work. I, I mean, what else is there to say? Great, great job. There's nothing else to say about her. That's it. 
we're going to cut you off. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Please, please do. Because I think if I continue to speak, I will just, it'll just get dumber. Um, because <laughs> I, I, it really is simple. And so I should just let it be simple. Um, all right. Let's talk about this production, Kirk. Let's talk about Showstopper and then Director Shoes. Showstopper is the thing you, you liked the most, the thing that stuck out to you the most in this film. What do you got? I'm going to say my Showstopper in a similar way to how we discussed the knife wall in that, you know, there are certain things that will happen in this movie that may or may not have happened in the first one. I hope I don't get myself into deep water here. Um, There in the first one, there is a little bit of uh, like miniature reveals. I should say of things that we didn't see because we weren't looking for it. And in this one, it is even more masterfully executed uh, in a way in which that doesn't trick the audience. It never shows you something that didn't happen. It never lies to you. What you see is fact. And then it goes through and tells you the story again. So it's very it's very similar to the first in that aspect. In any kind of murder mystery, you're going to get that kind of vibe. And I really appreciated how this one, the the level that it cranked up to, was just so uh, so so incredibly well. It's words. Words are important. Uh, <laughs> it was very well done, and I. I'm pretty, I was pretty in awe of how intricate it was, but, but mostly that they didn't have to trick the audience or retroactively change what we had already seen in this same film in order to fit whatever narrative they wanted in order to keep us guessing at who the, um, uh, who the villain was in this film as well. So that is my very, specific but vague showstopper for today. I like it. I mean, you you said something there that is is a part of what I'm going to talk about in Showstopper as well, but I want to call out especially, which is not tricking the audience, or I think of it as the reader because I'm someone who loves detective fiction, and even the best detective fiction, um, you know, noir-type writers fall into the trap of using gimmicks and tricks to to make sure that their reader cannot figure out the mystery, that it actually would be impossible for them to do so because they were missing a crucial piece of information. I mean, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle has done it. <laughs> Agatha Christie has done it. There have been plenty of them who have fallen into the trap of being sneaky little guys and 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 withholding information. And it's not cool and it's not fun as a fan of the genre to feel like you were deceived. The whole point and the whole appeal of the whodunit detective genre is trying to put the pieces together yourself and seeing if the conclusion that you come to is correct or what you got wrong or whatever. And and most of the time, if it's done well, you are still wrong because there is just something that has eluded you. Um, but it can't be that you were wrong because you were missing an information, a piece of information that nobody had. So you're exactly right. It has to be above, above board. Everything has to, you know, the cards have to be on the table, no trickery, nothing. Um, but my showstopper really, it, it should probably come as no surprise that it's going to come down to the writing. I think 
with the first film and with this film, I mean, you, you can't miss the unbelievable dialogue that Ryan Johnson writes. He does a great job. And in this movie, it's the same thing, but I'm actually going with the story and it's the, um, the level of detail in this mystery is so much higher than the last one. I think Kirk, this is essentially the same kind of thing that you were saying, but specifically the mystery itself. While I still found it predictable, I will admit, um, I still feel like I, I knew who did what, um, early on in the film. And I, I even said, I leaned over to my wife and said, Hey, this is what's going on. Um, I didn't know exactly how, and there were, so many layers to the onion in this thing that um, were so creative. And it's, it's, it's actually more so that rather than the layers themselves, the creativity of each layer of the mystery was what made it so fun to kind of unpeel. And even though I found myself in a position where I'm like, okay, I think this is who it is. And it ended up being, you know, that, um, it was still a really good time to figure out exactly why that was the correct answer and what specific things were going on. Um, so I, I give Ryan Johnson a ton of credit for not just writing the story and saying, okay, here's, here's who it's going to be and here's how we're going to get there, but going a level deeper to say how creative can we get with each of these steps? If we know that we need to have this thing to happen What's the most creative way we can tell that story and why? And what piece of, of information can we drop early in the movie that people are going to totally miss that will make the payoff that much more fun? So I give Ryan Johnson a ton of credit. I think there's no doubt the dude loves doing this and has a total handle on the genre. And this movie absolutely screamed Agatha Christie at multiple points, as did its predecessor. So... Um, he's he's totally a fan of of the genre, and I think he's having a total blast. And when it's a passion project and it's something that's fun, it's that much better. And I think that he's just on an, on another level with it. Beautiful. All just right. Beautiful. Let's go into the other side, Kirk. Let's talk director's shoes. It's time to talk about those director's shoes. Um, I would have to say that my biggest criticism of this film is that. In a, in a very similar way to uh, to Thor 4, uh, much the much hotly debated project, uh, we have some similarities in uh, reality to absurdity. In this film, um, this does not make or break this movie, um, and it's very, very short-lived. This takes place during COVID, and then it just doesn't matter. It's it's very it's a very strange choice. And when you have that to uh, to where where this sometimes ends up uh, throughout the film, not just at any particular point, but it rises and falls throughout the the absurdity level. That absurdity level doesn't you can't really get there when you're completely grounded in reality. Uh, COVID wasn't a made up construct like some may believe. <laughs> it actually happened to every person on this earth, and because of this you can't then take the story to to uh, to the creative places that it wanted to go i feel like if it would have just ejected that entirely then this would have been a full point and a half higher than i will give it uh, in my final notes and scoring 
But the fact that, that, that it was included, it did nothing to enhance uh, or take away from any character. Uh, the characters were so well written, they didn't need that kind of backdrop at all. And then I would have been able to come along for the ride of the full scope of these characters. I don't know why it was, it was injected. I really, I really don't know why. And that's my biggest complaint against this and any other property uh, that has been written in the past three years uh, with the exception of Joseph Lorden, Joseph Gordon Levitt's Mr. Corman on Apple TV plus there's no other intellectual property creation that I've seen that has dealt with COVID appropriately. And again, it's short lived in this film. It will not, it will not destroy people like it destroyed me. Uh, but it, it it's completely superfluous and I wish it wasn't in there. Yeah. I think it's hard. I think for whatever reason, I feel like filmmakers feel like they have to include that be like with recent films to show that like, they are aware of it and lived it, <laughs> but it's like, it adds no value. It, it adds no value. And we all know about it. And I think that film in general is, is sort of supposed to take place in a different world. I mean, this, this doesn't take place in our world. There's a made up company. There's made up people and celebrities and all kinds of stuff. In the first movie, there's a made up, you know, book, empire so it's 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 kind of like reality adjacent so if you have the choice to make it reality adjacent why don't you leave the pandemic out of it i I like i agree it's it's not something that really super bugged me but i was also like okay but why you know like but why um so i get that um for my director shoes i'm gonna go with the fact that um I felt like this movie, it, how do I, how do I phrase this? I probably should have phrased this out before I decided to dive into this sentence because I, I've had this idea in my head, but I have no idea how to really word it. Jump um, right in. We'll censor it all and no one will ever hear it <laughs> if gonna, you don't like it. We're going to censor it out. Um, <laughs> no, I I'm think, singing for, censor. I think for me it's, it's, it comes down to the themes and, and it's not really like the lack of themes, but it just felt like this movie like left something on the table in terms of its ambition. Like there, there is one overarching theme in this movie, which is that like, you know, what, what money and power does to people, which first of all is just like, how many times has that been done? A thousand bajillion gazillion times. It's, we see it play out in real life all the time. Everybody's painfully aware of what money and power does to people. And the whole sort of premise of this movie is like, Oh, look at all these rich people and all the issues they have because of the, their wealth and whatever. Um, and so I felt like it left something on the table. Whereas I felt like the first movie and, and of course it's, it's not totally fair to just compare them to each other, but I really did feel like the first film in the franchise had a bunch of like micro themes kind of spread throughout it that made it really fun where you could, every time you walk through it, you could look at one character, their motives, their specific perspective. And you could find a new thought that Ryan Johnson had while they were making this. Like, why did they make this character this way? Why do they have these motivations? 
what is the theme that's built into that specific character, uh, which I found to be really fun about that movie and why it gets better and better with each watch, in my opinion. Um, but in this movie, they all are kind of like, even though the characters are super well written, they're the like theme built into each character and the reason for being is, is sort of the same across the board. Um, there's like the one thing that unites them all, which is that <clears throat> they are drawn to power and, and money as, as a vehicle to power. And so I just felt like that was kind of, I don't know, left a little bit on the table. It's like, why, why even include it if it's not going to be something rich that we can really sink our teeth into. And maybe, maybe that's something that like I'll find more as I watch it again. But I felt like this was kind of, void of any meaningful theme. It doesn't stop the movie from being a super good time. And certainly you don't have to have tons of theming, but I think you have to choose the route that you want to go. And I didn't feel like Ryan Johnson chose a specific direction that he wanted to go in terms of the messaging other than just like rich people suck. (laughs) And it's like, yeah, totally right. Rich rich people, the worst we could all get behind that. Um, so I, I thought that was a little lackluster, but that's about it. Well, I say, I say, Cam, that was quite eloquent and 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 and, and relatable. <laughs> that was wonderful. Foghorn Leghorn here, just uh, <laughs> tying in for the final thoughts. I kicked Kirk out of the studio, and I just like to share his notes that he thinks on Glass Onion Knives Out Mystery. Let's do it. Let me lay it in here. This movie is fun. Ryan Johnson did not pay me to be here, but I must say, I must say, this is a very fun, a very entertaining, a very mysterious, a very realistic, a very hyperbole, silly, uh, quick my dog skip movie that you can just come on in and it'll feel like it happened in the blink of an eye. I do declare that comparing it to its first predecessor is unnecessary when you talk about sequels and prequels. Can I get an amen for the Star Wars sequels and prequels comparisons? But I must say, Glass Onion falls just point one below its predecessor because of my true heart-to-heart feelings. But do not leave it up to me. Make sure you go see this movie no matter what. This movie gets a 7.1 out of 10 curls, ladies and gentlemen. Ooh, 7.1. Okay. All right. Now, let me hear your Southern Savannah no, accent, I like, Kim. I will not, but I, I like that score. I When I looked back at our scores, so Knives Out 1, I gave it an 8.4. You gave it a 7.2. Um, I didn't re-listen to that episode, but I think our overarching theme was that it was too predictable of a film. Um, I don't remember what your thoughts were. That was my main thought. Like The main thing that really took the air out of my bubble in Knives Out 1 was like, I felt like the guy who was the red herring and was like, okay, that's the dude, that's the murderer was the person that ended up being it. And so then (laughs) it's like, oh, I was wrong for the right reasons. I don't (laughs) you know, like I wasn't totally, I wasn't actually wrong. It was just like, well, it can't be him because that's just way too obvious. And then it was, and it's like, oh, so maybe that's Ryan Johnson, like subverting, our whole red herring framework. I don't know. Um, But that was the main reason for my score. So we'll see. I'm actually going to be close to my original score too, Kirk. So we're not moving the needle too much. So 
With Knives Out, uh, or Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery, I have to say that the the tone shift was, was a welcome one for me. I actually had a really good time with this movie. I enjoyed the dynamic contrast that um, it has when compared to the first one. This one is much more live. Things feel like they're happening in real time. Things feel dynamic. They feel quick. It's witty. Um, it's funny. Uh, and and I think that it's just a perfect fit for the genre, and I thought that he, he really wrote it in such a way to make it just a really great time, as Kirk was kind of saying. Um, I still find it too predictable. I, I wish I, I'm waiting for Ryan Johnson to give me a mystery that really knocks my socks off and, and delivers something that is totally, um, that floors me. Maybe my expectations are too high there. I don't really know. Um, I'll have to listen to other people in here if they think it was predictable as well. But, you know, I'm okay with it. Like I said, the detail in the story was was so much fun that even though I had a pretty good idea of who I thought was responsible, the every single layer was, was packed with so much fun, so much detail. Um, and each character was just a blast to spend time with. They each got you know, their time in, in the spotlight to give their little monologues and, and have their exchanges and, and man, what a cast, <clears throat> what a cast. I think the first cast is probably technically superior in terms, they were asked to do a much more dramatic, uh, thing. And this, this cast had much more freedom and were allowed to be a lot like quirkier, zanier, funnier, um, so it just depends on where you fall on that spectrum. But for me, it totally worked and, um, I really enjoyed it. I can't wait to watch it again on December 23rd when it hits Netflix. I'm giving it an 8.6 out of 10, which is 0.2 higher than Knives Out. So, oh, yeah, look yeah, boy, that's very nice. <laughs> just call me boy. <laughs> well, in Savannah, we call we call people boys when they do kind things. So good job. They, okay, when they do kind things. Well, I'll have to take your word for it, there, uh, Mister Leg Horn. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that's that's knives out, man. We ended up pretty close to our original scores on the first film, so it feels like you and I are just like. We've made our opinion on this franchise, and there is not much uh, that is going to change it. But still waiting for that that mystery that's going to totally knock our socks off. I know that there's going to be more Knives Out on the way. Somebody suggested on Twitter that Ryan Johnson, uh, for the cast of Knives Out 3, just does the entire cast of The Last Jedi just to troll everybody. <laughs> so it'd be like <laughs> Daisy Ridley, John Boyega. Oscar Isaac, Laura Dern. Yes. You know, that, that could be a good time. So Mark Hamill. He is Mark, actually a murderer. <laughs> Mark Hamill. Uh, Adam Driver. Honestly, could be a really good good, could be a really good time. Um, so <laughs> let's hope that that happens. But that is our spoiler-free review of Glass Onion, a Knives Out Mystery. Uh, the film will be dropping, as I said, on Netflix on December 23rd. So just in time for... Christmas, I believe the 23rd is a, a Friday, and depending on how yeah. your company does hours, you should be off. That should be like the company Christmas Eve day. So hopefully you're off if you're in that situation and you get a chance to sit at home with some hot cocoa and one of those cozy sweaters that um, 
Chris Evans and Anna de Armas wear in the first movie and uh, watch Knives Out, uh, Glass Onion. So, Kirk, any final final words before we sign off? You know, I just think that this has been a wonderful time, Cam. <laughs> I and I appreciate I you bringing this. me in to review this <laughs> as your special guest, Kirk's alternate uh, associated personality. <laughs> Perfect. Well, that's great. Thanks for being here. And thank you all for being here and for watching and or listening to this episode. We want to thank you so much for that. We'll keep you posted on what is to come. We'll also give... Our executive producer, Ryan Spriggs, a big thank you, as well as his band, Rhetoric, who created the original music that you are hearing now. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you all next week. Talk to you then.